This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the UC San Diego Center for Healthy Aging's monthly public lecture. For those of you I haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Danielle Glorioso, and I'm the executive director for the Center for Healthy Aging and the Stein Institute for Research on Aging. I'm really delighted that all of you could skip the debate tonight and join us here for this amazing talk. <laughs> uh, I'm just so dis delighted to see such a lovely turnout tonight. For those of you who are new to us, the Center for Healthy Aging focuses on advancing lifelong health and well-being through innovative research, training, and community outreach. This public lecture series is just one example of our community outreach programs. Many of you know that we've been offering this program for over 30 years now, free to the public, with the um, thought that we want to connect the community with exciting advances that are happening in research and aging here at UC San Diego. So as I mentioned, this public lecture series is free to the public and is supported entirely through donations. So I'd like to thank all of you for your continued support through the years because we would not be able to, to support these wonderful programs without your help. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about all the exciting work we're doing here, you can find us at aging.ucsd.edu. Uh, I'm just delighted to introduce our speaker tonight, Dr. Howard Fellman. He's the new director of the Alzheimer's Disease Cooperative Study here at UC San Diego, and he also serves as dean for the Alzheimer's and Related Neurodegenerative Research here at UC San Diego School of Medicine. His arrival coincides with the launch of the University of California's program to accelerate the most promising Alzheimer's disease research into early proof-of-concept clinical trials. So this really is an exciting time for research here at UC San Diego. In 2007, the journal Lancet Neurology called him the master of dementia. What a title. And in 2014, Thomas Reuters named Feldman among the world's most influential scientific minds. Boy, are we lucky to have him here tonight. He's also most highly cited researchers in neuroscience and behavior. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Howard Feldman. Thank you for the very kind introduction. The accolades are to the extreme. I'm unworthy of them, but thank you. So it is my pleasure to be here and to speak to you this evening. Okay, so the title of tonight's talk is Finding Effective Treatments and Prevention of Alzheimer's Disease. The time is now. How many of you have a vested interest in this problem? Very good. Okay, so let me then tell you a little bit about my trajectory and how I got here, so at least you have a little bit more understanding of this. So this is a binational story. I was recruited to UCSD in April from the University of British Columbia, a beautiful campus on Point Grey in Vancouver. I previously had served there uh, for more years than I would care to publicly acknowledge, but you see some timelines. We created a center for brain health while I was there. You see this beautiful building. And if you have really good vision, you'll see that there are some cartoons of neurons and synapses modeled after Cajal, who was a Spanish neuroanatomist. And we've embedded those in the walls. 
And as the children go by, they tend to say, well, why do you have octopi on the walls of this building? I directed the Alzheimer Clinic when I was at UBC and served in various other administrative functions. I also had an opportunity in a very unique turn of events to work at Bristol-Myers Squibb for three years, where I was the therapeutic area head for neuroscience and led their global, global clinical research. So this was an opportunity to actually advance Alzheimer therapeutics right at the coal face, so very close to where molecules reach um, humans and potentially become the medicines that we use every day. So um, being a university faculty, we never leave home without making disclosures. So this is my disclosure of some of the things I've been involved in outside uh, and within my role at UCSD um, for your easy reference. So I have a few goals for tonight's talk. So the first is to ask the question and enable your understanding on how we're doing trying to find an effective disease-modifying Alzheimer's disease treatment. And I'd like to take you on this very interesting scientific journey from neuropathology to molecular targets to clinical treatments. And I'm going to go all the way back to where Dr. Alzheimer first described this disease and how we've approached this and what we've learned along the way. I would like you to be up to date with understanding what the risk factors are for Alzheimer's disease and other dementias and how you might modify your risk factors, particularly those that have the potential to delay the onset of dementia. And then I put this in a box for you because it's probably the most important one, which is to pick up some tips for your own brain health. Who would not like that? Pretty good. Okay, so you heard about the Alzheimer Disease Cooperative Study. So this is a network that conducts clinical trials in the United States. You see it has a lot of different sites, some of which are member sites, some of which are participating sites. And I've come to learn that there have been over 31 completed clinical trials done by this network. I would say that this is, without exaggeration, this is the largest experience of anyone in the world at doing clinical trials and the coordinating center is here in San Diego. So a very remarkable history, and it's been at it since 1991. If I put into words what the ADCS does, it's a funded network that tests novel treatment for the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease and its preventions. We test medicines and interventions that are unique and might not be otherwise tested. So there are a lot of things that come up that are of interest to the public, but maybe not to the private sector. And those have to have a place to be tested, and the ADCS is a place to do that. The funding model is largely public. It also has some private components, so we will collaborate with biotech companies and other partners who have interesting things that they want to test and maybe don't have the resources with which to test them. We have the support of the School of Medicine here at UCSD, the NIH, and as mentioned, industry partners. So we're going to start with things that you're probably familiar with. As I look around this room, I see a fair amount of gray in the audience. Of course, it's easier when you don't have to look in the mirror. This is the growth of individuals over the age of 60 
looking from 1950 onwards and what the projections look like, you can see that there will be an eight times increase in growth within our segment of people over the age of 60. When it comes to the problem of Alzheimer's disease and dementia, in 2010, just imagine this. At a global level, the cost being of care being $604 billion. In 2015, the best estimates were that there were 47 million people affected by dementia and Alzheimer's disease. By 2050, that number is going to triple to 140 million people. That's like an oh-my-God moment. One new case every four seconds. So that's really remarkable. That did not escape the attention of our politicians. The National Alzheimer Project Act, called NAPA, was formed in 2011. Its goals, as mandated through Congress, were to prevent and effectively treat Alzheimer's disease by 2025. They helped expand research funding to upwards of $1 billion annually. Now, a National Project Act for Alzheimer's disease sounds like something that others would do, but what really impressed me about this was the accountability that gets tied to the NAPA project. So the people that are in charge of NAPA are called in front of Congress every year and held accountable for the progress that's been made against the goals for Alzheimer's disease. So it is a very large initiative. President Obama signed into law 350 million new funds each year starting this year, and the NIA accordingly has had a quite significant increase in its budget. In 2013, I had the privilege of being invited to a G8 summit, the Global Action Against Dementia. Its ambitions amongst the G8 countries were to identify a cure or disease-modifying therapy by 2025. You see a relative synergy in the way that all of these ideas were come together. But one of their goals was quite interesting, actually. It was to increase the number of people in dementia-related research studies. So outside the door, and I will dispatch this part of my responsibilities, there's a table of the Shiley Marcos Alzheimer Research Center. They do lots of trials, lots of studies, many of which involve normal volunteers. So please feel free to pick up some pamphlets, and they would welcome your interactions with them. The World Health Organization, led by Margaret Chan, said that they broadened their viewpoint. So the World Health Organization is a public health organization. They said we should improve the quality and availability of care. We should seek a cure, but we need an urgent investment in primary prevention measures. So what an intriguing idea. The idea that we might be able to forestall dementia or prevent it. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that as we go along. Here's our progress with therapies. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dr. Alzheimer in 1906. If we fast forward 100 years, we've seen the development of several types of treatment, a group of medicines called cholinesterase inhibitors. You see three molecules down below. They were landmark insofar as we'd never had a medicine before that could help any aspect of cognition reliably. And these showed with some measure of reliability that they help some but not all people. 
we of course became very greedy. We wanted, if something's going to work, we wanted bigger effect sizes. We wanted better impact of the therapy. So that led us on. In 2003, there was approval of a medicine called memantine, which worked on a different receptor in the brain, the NMDA receptor, and an uncompetitive receptor antagonist. And we've been going through a drought, despite monies being spent finding treatments. Since 2004, there's been really no success. And there's been a certain resignation and discouraged discourage feeling in the field that this may be harder than we thought it was going to be. There have been 2,000 clinical trials in the last 20 years. So you can see that there's been a problem with our success rate and it leads us to go back to fundamentals and ask what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong in our concept of this disease. So the journey takes us back to where Dr. Alzheimer starts. It takes us through neurological pathology, which is to say when the brain is donated at the end of life and we look down the microscope, what are the features that we see? And how have we come to understand the molecular pathology? So what are the proteins in the brain that are misfolding, misaggregating, and being mishandled? So Dr. Alzheimer was called to see a patient, August D. Eventually, she was admitted to the hospital. She was described to have had a rapidly worsening memory. I should say that she was only 56 years old. So it's quite perplexing to see such a young woman with a rapidly worsening memory. She couldn't find her way around the house without getting lost. When she was brought in the hospital, she was entirely perplexed. She was disoriented to time and to place. She had trouble understanding those around her, and she made errors in her language. She thought that her husband was cheating on her and had considerable jealousy. She was yelling that she was about to be murdered. Despite all of that, her primary neurological function, her gait, her use of her limbs, was entirely normal, and she had a pretty aggressive disease. She died after four and a half years. They got to examine her brain at the end of her life, and these are some of the original um, histologic sections. So this section in here is actually from Dr. Alzheimer's presentation in 1906. That's pretty cool. And he described these round things. I think at the time he probably wasn't quite sure what they were. They've subsequently, we've determined that they're called senalneuritic plaques. They're little calcified collections of proteinaceous material with the core of amyloid beta. So we now know what these are. This is called a tangle. So if you imagine that a nerve cell is normally shaped like a pyramid, and imagine if the pyramid lost its skeleton and just collapsed in on itself, so tangles. And he also described some changes in the blood vessels. He thought it was a vascular disease. We discounted that for several decades. We're coming back to it for reasons that I'll explain. So all of these findings were immutable. And it led us to consider, in hindsight, as I was thinking about this, it reminded me of Sutton's Law. Does anyone remember Sutton's Law? Yeah. So, so Willie Sutton was a bank robber. And they said, well, why do you rob banks? They said, well, of course I rob banks. That's where all the money is. 
So they applied the same kind of logic to this problem and said, well, the money must be here and it must be here and it must be here. So why don't we see if we can remove the offending pathology? Let's figure it out. So I first want to tell you about the part of this story that's called senonaritic plaques and amyloid. And we've come now to understand that this is one of the earliest molecular signatures of this disease. And people have thought this was really the Rosetta Stone of this disease. And credit should be liberally given to Dr. George Glenner, a pathologist here at UCSD. In 1984, he decoded this protein and he described the amyloid beta protein and its relationship to Alzheimer's disease. So that was a pretty proud day for UCSD. I would say it's been a fairly enduring contribution. And we've got better pictures now of what these amyloid plaques look like. And we've learned a lot more about these amyloid plaques. Look at this ring of purple cells. These are inflammatory cells. They're called microglia. And it turns out they're like a scavenging army. So as soon as you put amyloid beta into the brain, you get a descent of these microglia that provide a ring as if they want to stop the amyloid from growing. They want to surround it and remove it. We've been trying to think about how how we can advance anti-inflammatory medicines on the grounds that maybe it's harmful, although there's still equipoise. I don't think we really know whether this activity is harmful or helpful. And this is just to show some of the immunoreactivity of the amyloid. It really does trigger the immune system into action. We've learned a lot about the way that amyloid um, is metabolized. So this is a big protein. This is about 700 amino acids. It's called the amyloid precursor protein. It's the parent protein from which this amyloid beta fragment, which is only 40 amino acids, 42 amino acids, gets cleaved. So there's a set of scissors that cleave the various fragments. This is the moiety that's been felt to be toxic. If you cleave down this pathway, you get fragments of amyloid that don't seem to be toxic. So a simple solution to this might be program to the left, turn off to the right. So that's taken us 20 years to try that approach without yet achieving success. So the story gets a little bit more complicated. So as you cleave amyloid beta, it turns out it's very hard to work with. It's incredibly sticky. And it, it starts in monomeric form, and then it forms into oligomers. Oligomers are soluble species, maybe up to 10 or 12 amino acids, or 10 or 12 clumps of beta amyloid that stick together. And then eventually, it goes into these things called protofibrils. So now it acquires a beta-crystalline structure. So now it gets firm, it's got a beta-pleated sheet structure, and here we have the microglia just hovering around. So one of the problems with Alzheimer's disease is that we couldn't tell if there was amyloid beta in the brain and in the spinal fluid or not. And one of the most remarkable progresses that's been made was in 2011, 
or somewhere between 20, 2009, 2011, we actually began to see amyloid in the living brain. So imagine for a moment how privileged we are through scientific discovery to see hot colors. These hot colors represent aggregated amyloid beta in the brain. That makes it much easier. Before, we would only infer. In fact, the worst of it is we'd have to wait for people to pass away and then have a brain donation, then look at the brain at post-mortem, and that was the only way we could be sure that amyloid beta was in the brain. Now we get to see it with uh, PET scans. This is a, a pro procedure we have here in San Diego and many other centers where we can look for amyloid beta in the brain. We also can do lumbar punctures, which involves passing a needle in between the bones and the spine, taking a sample of fluid, and looking for the footprint of amyloid. And this is how cool, this is a moment for how cool is this? And just pardon the jargon, but I just can't restrain myself. So this is a normal individual. So this was a research study that took a lot of imagination. They said, we're going to try and find individuals that are within a year of their presumed death. So people with advanced Alzheimer's disease, people that were donating their brain that had other problems, and they were able to harvest quite a lot of brains. This one, without any warm colors in it, so the warm colors are the yellows and the reds, looks pretty normal. Even without knowing anything about PET scans, you probably nod your head, yeah, that looks pretty good. I don't see much yellow or red there. And this is what the brain looks like. These are the amyloid plaques, right? So I think I could probably arm twist you into saying, oh, I don't really see any immunohistochemistry of amyloid. That's normal. This one is on the margin of turning positive with these findings. And you see what the plaque score looks like in these images. And this one, I don't think there would be any doubt that this is a positive scan. And these correlations are incredibly strong. 96% agreement between the clinical classification and the imaging findings between the PET and the neuropathology. So really an unprecedented viewpoint into what this might look like. Dr. Glenner's ascertainment of amyloid led to the amyloid hypothesis. The idea was if we could clear amyloid from the brain, we'd get rid of all those plaques, how great would that be? We'd cure the disease and we could move on to the next disease. Now, what's the evidence for this? So amyloid is invariable, it's early, and it's seminal. We've come to learn that it occurs probably 10 to 20 years before symptoms begin. So we actually know that it occurs very early. You can't actually have Alzheimer's disease without the amyloidopathy. You can have dementia without amyloidopathy, but you can't have Alzheimer's disease without amyloidopathy, by definition. The genetics are remarkable. Now, there are these rare forms of Alzheimer's disease that are genetic. And by genetic, I'm referring to an autosomal dominant pattern of inheritance, which means that it moves with a 50% risk from generation to generation. It only occurs in 0.3% of the time. So it's very rare. But it's very important because if you have a mutation of that precursor protein APP, or in any of the cleavage enzymes called presenilin-1 or presenilin-2, you will invariably get Alzheimer's disease, 
and you will invariably have abnormal amyloid beta. So there's clearly a smoking gun next to the genetic forms of Alzheimer's. But what was very exciting was out of a study in Iceland, they found a mutation that protected against Alzheimer's disease. So when individuals had this rather rare change in their DNA, they were protected against Alzheimer's disease. So a mutation causing the disease and a different mutation protecting against the disease. So the genetics look like there's something in there that we have to pay attention to. In Down syndrome, there's an extra copy of the APP gene. There are three copies, and it's associated invariably with amyloidopathy and what looks like Alzheimer's disease. And we've been able to, through the remarkable work in the mouse and rat labs, take these mutations and we can insert them into the DNA of a young mouse. We breed them so mice and rats have these abnormalities. And let me show you some of the remarkable things that we can do with that. So by now you're getting used to looking at amyloid beta. So this is the hippocampus of the brain. This is the seat of memory in the brain. And look at the density of this. What do you think of that? Pretty remarkable. This is a mouse that had this pathology, would get this pathology, but they're immunized with amyloid beta. So someone had this very clever idea. Dale Shank had this very clever idea. He said, I wonder what would happen if I immunized this mouse who was going to get Alzheimer's disease with the protein itself. Give it an adjuvant, put it in the mouse, and lo and behold, that was the result. I said, oh, that's easy. Give him the Nobel Prize. We're done with this. So that was pretty good. And then this was the result. So these are the mice making errors when they're given the mutation. And this was their error rate after they were given the vaccine. So we could not wait to get this into, into people because we were thinking this is just too cool to believe. So off we went to people, and in fact, this was the mouse unvaccinated, this is the mouse vaccinated, this is the human unvaccinated, not so good, this is the human vaccinated. We did it. The only problem was the humans didn't get better. So they looked like they still had the disease. So that was a problem because we thought this was going to solve the problem, and actually it didn't. And not only that, telling us that if we didn't already know, mice and men are not exactly the same. The human immune system didn't like this, not one little bit. And you see, I'm sorry. And you see this blood vessel with a lot of red in it and a lot of inflammatory cells there was an autoimmune disease that got created by using this vaccine. So back to the drawing boards we had to go, and someone came up with another approach saying, rather than actively immunize, maybe we should just produce antibodies against amyloid beta and infuse them. And in fact, that looked pretty good. So here's amyloid positive, and here's after treatment, almost better, right? 
So these are all real-time things that are happening, and everyone is trying to absorb them and process them into, okay, what do we do with this now? And the what do we do with it now? So this might be, if you're an investment banker, this might be your money slide. And there's probably about $5 billion worth of research studies. And you can tell it's not going to be good because I can summarize $5 billion in one slide, except for the bottom entry here, which I'll tell you about. So this has gotten to phase three trials. So these are potentially registrational trials. Bapinuzumab, solinuzumab, which is currently in the field being tested as a preventive monoclonal antibody against amyloid. IVIG, so intravenous gamma globulin, gantanarumab, cranazumab. You'll notice the common factor here is UMABs. UMABs are monoclonal antibodies against amyloid. So that was the way they were built, to recognize amyloid and to remove it from the brain. So just when we were about to turn the page and say $5 billion cannot all be wrong, a ray of light, finally a positive trial. So let's spend a moment looking at that. So here's what placebo looked like. So this is called aducanumab. This is a randomized clinical trial that we're currently recruiting for here. It's not an ADCS trial, but it's one being sponsored by Biogen. What impressed me about the, these data are here's the average of persons treated with placebo, and you would say, it doesn't really look like there's been much benefit, so that looks about the same. Here's their three milligram per kilogram dose, so decisively less visual representation of amyloid. Here's six milligrams, and here's 10 milligrams. And this is the clinical information. So it looks like there's a dose-response relationship. So the first ray of hope. Now the problem is, was this an artifact of a small sample? Is it real? Can we believe it? What to do next? And they're now invested in a very large program of research. So for those that are interested, aducanumab is worth attention. And this made the, the very prestigious journal called Nature, which is as high up the scientific tree as one en ends up going. So that's where we've come to on amyloid, except for a few other things. And I apologize in advance, this may be a little sobering. So we now know that amyloid builds up, as I mentioned, within this yellow space, 10 to 20 years before people get symptoms. Now this is the bad news, amyloid positivity. So not bad if you're 50 years old, 1%. 60, not so good, 11%. 70, even less good, 23%. 80, 34%. 90, 50%. On average, 24% of individuals over the age of 50 are amyloid positive. Now, we need to better understand what that means. Will everyone who's amyloid positive eventually get Alzheimer's disease? Will a portion get Alzheimer's disease? Many unanswered questions only we are now doing very large-scale studies trying to understand what the significance of being amyloid positive is. Now, with the progress being very slow along the amyloid front, 
someone turned the question to Dr. Alzheimer's second pathology, which were the tangle proteins and tau pathology, and said, well, maybe we got the Rosetta Stone wrong. Maybe tau's the Rosetta Stone, and maybe it's the main event in Alzheimer's disease. So get the brain, be rid of tau, that will help us. So what does tau actually do? I explained to you that it kind of helps those pyramidal neurons maintain their structure, prevents them from falling in on themselves. So tau is a binding protein. It stabilizes these pathways. This is where the nutrition of your brain cells actually works. So all of the nutrition that feeds nerve cells travels through these so-called microtubules. And if you, something happens to your tau, these things end up dissolving and they form into, again, aggregates, again with some crystalline structure. They again form into these oligomers and then into crystalline structure. So in some ways there's some similarities between the tau protein and the amyloid protein, at least insofar as these end up in neurofibrillary tangles. Now, unlike amyloid, which does not have a close relationship to clinical symptoms. So when I'm evaluating a person and they have memory impairment, it's very hard to relate that to their amyloid state. By contrast, tau abnormalities does relate to their clinical state more often. And we, there's a fairly predictable pattern of the way tau builds in the brain. I won't trouble you with all the details, only to say that we've known this from BRAC staging of neuropathology but again, here's some very exciting PET scanning. So this is now a ligand that ties to the tau protein and to tangle, so aggregates of tau protein. And so again, here's normal, here's normal, here starts to be abnormal. So this is now getting to be mildly cognitively impaired. So that's abnormal, and it turns out that as the pathology exits the hippocampus and moves into the temporal cortex, that corresponds quite well to symptoms developing. And then here's full-blown Alzheimer's disease. So now we have these two molecular signatures for Alzheimer's where we look at the regions of the brain, we can begin to understand the sequence. So again, how cool is that? Now imagine for a moment that it's not amyloid, but tau that's at the center of this. It does tie to a lot of things. There's tau pathology associated with Parkinson's disease and multiple systems atrophy. There's tau protein at the heart of this disorder called CTE, or chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I've noticed Americans like this game called football we're going to come to understand that it does have some consequence in relationship to risk. Huntington's and epilepsy have some tie-in to tau, and tau, of course, has a relationship that Dr. Alzheimer described to Alzheimer's disease. So tau turns out to be pretty darn important for a lot of the neurodegenerative pathway. Now, it's also a reminder that the brain is complicated, if we needed a reminder, this is a reminder that it may not be one thing, and this just tells us some of the interrelationships. And maybe by studying Alzheimer's disease in a silo, rather than studying 
Parkinson's disease, Huntington's, CTE, frontotemporal dementias, maybe we've been doing ourselves a disservice. So if you go to meetings, you may go to frontotemporal dementia meetings. You don't go to the Alzheimer conference. You go to the Alzheimer conference, you don't really know what's happening in the world of Parkinson's disease. So one might argue that if we're ever going to get a hold of these disorders, we're going to have to think more broadly. So this is our success map at trying to target tau treatments. So red means we've tried without success. Um, brown means they're still in development. And you can see that our scorecard, again, here looks modest at best. The only thing we can say is that we're still out there trying. So I then pose a question. So, well, one way to understand this is to think about metaphors. So I'm thinking about this, and then one day it comes to me. I said, maybe these lesions that Dr. Alzheimer described are actually just tombstones. So I'm thinking, what might that mean? And then I come up with this idea. I said, when you think about it, if you went into the graveyard and you took all the tombstones out, actually nobody would be any the better for it. So if tangles and plaques are simply tombstones of neurodegeneration, but not the active lesions, we may be going down the wrong way. So we have to think beyond plaque and tangle, and I want to show you some evidence of what the aging brain looks like. So one of the relationships that turns out to be very important is stroke in the brain. Now, stroke comes in various flavors and descriptions. Stroke can be incidental, a bump in the night, a small change in function. It can be very eloquent, where something very big and devastating happens. And it may be seen only when you do imaging of the brain. Now, if you have some Alzheimer disease lesions, plaques and tangles, plus you have stroke in the brain, it increases your risk of dementia by 20 times. So that's not a chance affair. That suggests that there's something else when you have multiple pathologies, it seems like there's an incremental effect, something bad is happening. Furthermore, some of our sanctity and sense of well-being about our diagnostic acumen and this disease comes from well-characterized recent case material. So imagine you get the world's best centers to recruit individuals that are said to have Alzheimer's disease, and then they do brain donation. The end of life, they look at their brain. And this is not a huge sample, but it's a representative sample. I think there's something like 22 persons in this. Only 14% of the people had solo Alzheimer pathology. The rest had other protonopathies. So synuclein pathology associated with Parkinson's and Lewy body, 44% of people had those markers. Hippocampal sclerosis with a different protonopathy, 40%. Vascular pathology, 22%. And a different kind of pathology called grain disease with another percent. So you see, it's the rule. And if you think about it, the aging brain is a very benevolent host. It acquires all kinds of things. And sadly for us, the presence of one pathology does not protect against another.
So rather, the brain accepts them all, and they are interactive. Not only that, but if we send people for MRI scans, we can't differentiate coincident pathology. And our neuropathologist typically looks at us and says, well, you guys just aren't very good clinically. You should be able to tell this. But the truth is that it doesn't express itself clinically. It's in the brain. It's probably relevant, but it's not easy to identify. Now, beyond that, I told you about August D. She was 56 years old, and her brain looked relatively pristine for Alzheimer pathology. But look at this excellent work of Pete Nelson from Studies in Aging in the University of Kentucky, where they did the Nun studies, by the way. And look very carefully at this. I stared at this for a few hours the other day, trying to understand what's this graph actually telling us. So what it tells us is that there's quite a big ascent in prevalence of dementia, but it also tells us that the yellow space, when you're above 80, begins to open up, and that's brain arteriosclerosis. So it's not that important brain arteriosclerosis or a big problem when you're down at 60, but it does or even doesn't even seem to be a problem until you're 70, and then it, suddenly it opens up. Now it's a problem. And you look at lacunar infarcts, again, bit of a problem, but when you get above 80, starts to be a bigger problem, hippocampal sclerosis. And in fact, if anything, the red looks like it's trending to be stable or down. So it actually looks like Alzheimer's may be less prominent as a pathology if you have the good fortune to live over the age of 80, and it tends to be other things. And then he described something called primary age-related tauopathy, and you see it opening up at 80. This is primarily a tau solo pathology. So you see that if we did all our trials and we called everything Alzheimer's disease, we'd have problems because actually what's underneath it is quite different across the continuum of age. And here's just an example of some of these late-life things. I'm not going to go into detail about it, but only to say that there's a whole variety of things that will happen. And he's come up with the acronym CARTS, or Cerebral Age-Related TDP43 and Sclerosis. That's a bit of a mouthful. I'm not sure that name will survive. But I think it makes the point that there are other pathologies that are very important. Now, I know the reason you've come here this evening is to be like this pole vaulter. Or maybe not. So what are the, let's talk about prevention and think about what that actually means. So in 1997, a statistical epidemiologist did some modeling. And he modeled out over a period of four decades. And he came up with this most remarkable conclusion he began to model and say, if we could delay the onset of Alzheimer's disease, not at all, we'd be on this great ski slope. If we could delay by half a year, we'd be on this crimson ski slope. If we could delay by one year, we'd be orange. If we delayed by two years, and if we delayed in yellow by five years, we could cut the prevalence of this disease by 50% over four decades. How remarkable is that? 
So we have our marching orders. If we're thinking about this as a public health problem, we're thinking about, so what can we actually do to delay the onset of this disease by six months, one year, and so on? Now, what's not said here, and what you have to say, what you have to understand, is the idea that implicit in this is that because so many older people are affected, people will die of other reasons. But I think when given the choice, you'd probably prefer to die of other reasons and not to lose your cognitive function, or at least you probably wouldn't be here if you were worried about, um, not worried about losing your cognitive function. So that's really, those are our marching orders. And in all the national plans, when they talk about preventing and delaying, it's all about this model. It's all about if we could achieve. And as we go through these things, I want you to think about what the implications might be. So risk factors for dementia. So these are lifetime trajectory things. So these are the risk factors. And what's really interesting about this graph is that some of these things begin quite early in life. So as I like to tell people, choose your parents wisely because they're the ones that are going to give you your genes. And you can see that if you get born with particular genes for Alzheimer's disease, that's going to be very important. But there are risk factors, diet, alcohol, diabetes, depression, and particularly the stroke risk factors are very important. Hypertension, obesity, smoking, cholesterol, atrial fibrillation, and that will culminate in late-life problems. But it's not all about risk factors. It's also about protective factors. So good education and lifelong learning representing something that one can participate in, physical activity, diet, cognitive and social activity, potentially being protective, and trying to optimize your brain reserve, your cognitive reserve. Now, I want to apply some science to this because there's a lot said that isn't scientific about this. So let's go through a little bit of this. So my colleague, Mia Kivipelto, in Stockholm came up with a risk calculator. So you may all do a mental risk calculator of your own risk. The way it works is you put your age here. You notice my advice is don't bother living till 85, not so great. You start with a 32% risk. But anyways, you have good fortune. So you get a score based on age. You then look at family history. Your risk doubles for each first-degree relative. So this gives you a percent then you double it or quadruple it or one-time it to get your next risk. And then you apply vascular risk factors and you double it or quadruple it. That gives you a vascular score. And then you multiply your overall risk. There is an example if you're 70 and your mother had Alzheimer's disease and you have hypertension, that'll give you a 40% risk. So pretty darn important and give you some idea that you better take care of those vascular risk factors. Now, these are some data that indicate, these are from Vladimir Hachinsky in London, Ontario, says, look, the trend for stroke is falling. And look at that. It almost looks like the trend for dementia may be trending down also. So maybe there's something important here at midlife and things that we can do. What about physical activity and aerobic training? So this is a very interesting study. 
Here was a randomized clinical trial of physical activity versus usual care, so stretching or other things. And the idea was that people would moderately, intensively walk 50 minutes three times a week. They would have a trainer. They would have a diary. They would be adherent. They would do it at home. And they would have support between visits. So a whole infrastructure to support them. But what was remarkable was not only that people did better at six months, but they actually did better well after the intervention ended at six months and when it was measured at 18 months. So it's almost as if something happened to change health practice and lifestyle that sustained itself to benefit in the longer term. Now, this was small improvement in cognition without an improvement in quality of life, but that's not so bad for three times a week, 50 minutes of activity. Unless you really don't like activity, looks like a good investment. We are doing a trial through the ADCS called the EXERT trial. This is with 300 individuals who haven't been regularly exercising but are in good health. Turns out the bad news on this one is if you're already exercising like a fiend, this isn't going to help you. You've already extracted the benefit from that one. But if you've not been exercising and you're in good health, this is worth doing. And again, I emphasize the idea that having a trainer is a part of this. So we had an experience where I got called to a donor who wanted to invest in a trial like this. He said, Howard, so the thing I don't understand is who's going to pick up the infrastructure cost if the trial's positive? And in this program, I'm very excited because we got the YMCA across the United States as our partner. So this is going to be done within the YMCAs across the country. And what's really cool about that is that it allows a pathway for implementation in the future. So it's not just a research study that's going to stop in the research lab. It's a research study that has the possibility of becoming a program sponsored by the YMCA. It's 30 minutes to a target heart rate of 70 to 80 percent, 10 minutes of warm-up, 5 minutes of cool-down, four times a week, two sessions led by a trainer, and the comparison is stretching, balance, and range of motion. The problem with this a little bit is that my colleagues that designed this trial said, well, you know, what if stretching works? It's the comparator group. And if it does work, it's going to lessen the benefits of active intervention. So one of the things we're doing is having a usual care arm here of individuals who meet all the entry criteria but are not going to have either stretching or aerobic training. And what I love about this study is its potential for community implementation. Now, can you train your brain? So this is cognitive training versus cognitive activity. It's an interesting study. 2,700 people, so a very well-sized trial, with the idea that we aim to try and intervene to train reasoning, memory, processing speed. An intervention given over five to six weeks in 60 to 75-minute sessions. Boosters, I love this, right? Now you go and you get a little booster train up at 11 and 15 months. And post-training, there's improvement with each intervention in reasoning, memory, and processing speed for up to five years. So that's pretty good. People self-report that they think they're functioning better in their everyday lives. 
When objective measures are done, the neuropsychologist can't determine any advantage of the intervention. So it's kind of interesting. People seem to feel better, feel that they're doing better in their lives, but it's not measurable. And unfortunately, in this study, there was no difference in dementia incidence over the five years. So a helpful intervention didn't quite get to where we needed it to be. Now, this is the next generation of prevention trials, which is to say, okay, why don't we put everything together? So this one got a lot of play. It's called the Finger Study. It was done in uh, Finland and Scandinavia. So this was a two-year double-blind randomized trial. The interventions were diet, so optimizing your diet if you needed to lose weight, putting you on a diet that would help you lose weight, relatively low carbohydrate, 10% carbohydrate, relatively limited um, fat, exercise, cognitive training, and vascular risk monitoring. So all the elements, putting them all together. And they took individuals with high KD scores. So those, that scoring of dementia risk, they did, you had to score at least a six on that. And your cognition had to be at or slightly lower than expected. And they were able to get a benefit on neuropsychological tests, a small effect size, but encouraging nevertheless, and you see the separations. So one thing it didn't do is that it didn't make your memory better, but I think this is why people feel that their everyday function is better. It relates to this thing called executive function. So that's your ability to hold things in mind, to be aware of things going on around you, to plan, to execute the things that you want to do. And I think consistently on a lot of these interventional trials, the benefits come on executive functioning more so than on a pure memory function. And I think that's just mobilizing your inherent capabilities. Okay, so if you've been having a snooze, I need you to wake up now because this is what you need to take home today. So the aging brain is the host to multiple neuropathologies. And more than that, there's a critical interaction between degenerative, vascular, and other mechanisms which culminate in cognitive impairment and dementia. I think it's important to understand that dementia is a syndrome. Alzheimer's disease, which I've shown you this evening, is a very important, single most important cause. But late life, we're coming to learn, may have less Alzheimer's disease pathology, and there may be other multiple pathologies. If we lump it all together, we may never make progress. So that's, for us as researchers, very important. I think it also makes it unlikely that we're going to find a single panacea, a single bullet. I think it's too complicated for that. I think it's going to require much more of what we might refer to as a precision medicine approach. We may need to take into account vascular. We may need to take into account evidence of amyloidopathy, tauopathy, TDPopathy. I imagine that we're going to be, if we fast forward five or ten years, we're going to be describing persons' unique proteinopathies and then what's needed to treat them. Nevertheless, while all of that work continues to run in the background, I hope that I've given you some reason to believe that risk factors can be appreciated, can be modified, and while the effect sizes are small, they're not inconsiderable, and maybe by the time we put all those multimodal risk factors together, we will achieve a six-month, one-year 
delay in onset of dementia. So what else but to quote a Canadian philosopher at the end of this talk. So they asked Wayne Gretzky about how you play hockey, and he says, you have to skate to where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is. So we bear that in mind. So I thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.